It's me again. <laughs> One of the things that matters to us uh, around Journey is identifying and developing the next generation of leaders in the church. Uh, we want to be a church that develops leaders. And so from time to time, you're going to see this regularly around here, is that we will have a younger leader on our stage. And today, we get that very special opportunity to have one of those younger leaders, my good friend, Adam Silverness, who's actually preaching on our stage for the very first time. Adam Silverness, he is the director of the Young Life Ministry at Montana State University, does a fantastic job up there launching that ministry and leading it well. Uh, I've known Adam for a lot of years now. One of the things that I'm very grateful for him is his commitment to his family. He loves his family. He cares for his family well, but also his commitment to making Christ as available as possible to as many college students as possible in the most relevant and the most relational ways possible. Let's give a very, very warm Journey Church welcome to my good friend, Adam Silverness. Love you, bud. Thanks, bud. Look at that awkward super awkward is that what I have to look forward to that being that bald thanks Bob um, <laughs> um, well welcome everybody and happy new year's this is honestly a huge privilege for me um, and really nerve-wracking actually as you can imagine uh, being up on stage with these bright lights um, I'm mostly saying that just so I feel more comfortable I don't know if it's working quite yet um, but you know if it sounds like a joke when I'm talking I'd love a laugh and that I mean that would be just great um, like Bob said uh, for those who don't know me my name's Adam um, we've been around Journey really since the beginning. Um, my wife went to Harvest in Billings. She moved here. She told me she was going to Journey. We were dating at the time, and so I followed her here. Um, and when I mean we, I mean my family. And here is my family, a picture of them, hopefully. Um, so this was just yesterday. We just dressed. No, this was for Halloween. Um, and here's the funny thing. So I like Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, I'm in the Darth Vader mask. I didn't feel like you needed my face because um, I'm right here. Um, my son, Beckham, um, is Luke Skywalker. And then we have Leia, um, my daughter, Rylan, and my wife, Jenna, who is Padme. I'm Dallin. So we're the Skywalker family. And I got definitely the short end of the stick there as the bad guy. But the funny thing about that is, so I've really been getting my kids into Star Wars. If you like Star Wars, great. If you don't, sorry. Uh, but Jenna doesn't at all. She doesn't really like science fiction or anything. And as you can see, she is by far the best dressed and like most painted up. You know, my costume took four minutes maybe to put on and hers was like a 45 minute ordeal. So thanks, son. That was awesome. Um, secondly, just as a way of introduction, like Bob said, um, I work for a Christian nonprofit in town called Young Life. And for those of you um, who don't know what Young Life is, it's a non-denominational ministry that focuses on reaching lost kids in our valley, middle school, high school, and college students. We can put that up there, that'd be great. So this is our, our volunteer leaders, or most of them anyway, some of them aren't there, um, at our Christmas party just a couple weeks ago. Um, and I wanna keep that up there because they're really kind of the heart and soul um, of what we do. So what we, what we do is through intentional and real relationships between our adult volunteers and kids, we earn the right to speak into their lives we share what Jesus has done with them and for them. We ask them to respond to his call of salvation. And then we love them regardless of their response. 
I think that's the piece that I, I just love about this ministry. Um, and what I love about Journey, too, is come as you are, and even if this isn't something that you want to jump in and jump on board with, we're still going to love you. It made a huge impact on my life in middle school and in high school, um, and so I love now that I'm able to kind of pour in and make an impact here. And those people right there are just, they're incredible. Um, most of them are, are college-age volunteers, and they give up a gigantic amount of time and energy. Um, I mean, they, they're hanging out with middle school, high school, and college students instead of doing a million other things, um, which is just awesome. So, I think we're good on the picture. Um, when Chris and Bob asked me to preach, or asked if I wanted to preach a couple months ago, I asked them what they want me to preach about. And if you've become a journey for any amount of time, you know, or at least can maybe sense, the amount of time and intention and prayer and planning that goes in, not just to the Sunday worship gathering, but in particular, the message and the message series. A lot of time we'll do series. And so I was really surprised at their response when they said, preach about whatever you'd like. And I was like, oh, great. At first, that sounded really, really awesome. And then as I got into it, I was like, oh, it would have been a lot better, I think, if they would have just given me something a lot more clear. Um, but as I prayed about what God maybe wanted me to share today and thought about it, um, really what I came to is, what's God asking me to do? Because I think that's probably a real easy way and a personal way um, to share kind of what's going on in my life, but hopefully it'll hit with some of you as well. And he brought this question to mind, and he's bringing this question to mind for me for a long time, um, and so I'll share it with you today. And I think it's the title of the message. Um, who is God calling you towards? Who, who is God calling you towards? Um, this is something that God, I feel like, continuously works in me. Um, and while I think that I'm starting to narrow in on a group through Young Life, I still have a lot of work to do. But enough about me. Let's see what God has to say about this. And first... Let's take a step back from that question of who is God calling you towards and first ask, is God calling us toward anything? And the passage of scripture that I have in your notes page that I want to focus on today is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And so it's, it's really towards the end of Jesus' ministry and really his life, really, really close. We're about two days away um, from his trial and execution. So Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is kind of this hill overlooking Jerusalem, about 250 feet above the, where the temple is. Probably has a great view or did at that point. Um, and he's talking here today, which is a long time ago, about his second coming, the time when he'll return to judge and kind of instate, reinstate his kingdom of, of uh, the kingdom of God on earth. And as I read this, can I ask you to close your eyes? I know that might be asking a lot. Um, but I really want you to picture what's going on here. And so as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm hopefully going to kind of prepare you and push you into it, and then I'll just start reading. And I really want you to put yourself in the scene um, as, um, as Jesus is talking here. So go ahead and close your eyes. So I want you to picture a glorious throne Maybe it's gold or silver, maybe it's jeweled. And there's Jesus 
sitting on this throne. But it's not the Jesus from the pictures that you've seen, kind of in a bathrobe and Birkenstocks. But it's Jesus in his full glory. And maybe that means a lavish royal robe or a crown on his head. Um, I imagine it's really bright and there's like this light emanating from him. And beside him and behind him are angels as far as the eye can see. And then in front of his throne, looking up at him, there's a huge group of people. Huge. You you can't even imagine how far back it goes. But this isn't just some random group of people. As you're looking, you're seeing people that you know and love and trust. Others who are Christ followers, maybe, like you. And you hear Jesus say to everybody, I'll separate you into two groups like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And you watch his people move from one side to the other. And soon there's a clear blank space in between these two huge seas of people. And then we'll jump into the passage. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. So just keep picturing that that group on his right. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And these people will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your everlasting, unconditional love. We come to you today, any of us tired or broken and some of us just exhausted. But today, Lord, can you give us our daily bread to sustain us once again? We ask, to you, we ask you to speak to us in a new way. We ask you to reveal yourself to us and we ask that your spirit invades this place. Amen. I don't know about you, but this passage of scripture is really hard for me to hear, let alone picture. And it's hard because I look at my own life and I don't know if I'm doing that great of a job at feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, inviting strangers in, or clothing the naked, or caring for the sick, visiting people in prison. Some of those things I'm just flat out not doing. And it seems like it's pretty tough news 
because Jesus seems to be telling us here that if we don't do these things, eternal punishment awaits us, a place that the Bible calls hell, a very real place where we're separated from God. But to me, the most alarming thing in this passage isn't our eternal destiny, whether we go to heaven or hell. It's the fact that Jesus is talking to some, some of these people that think they're good to go and find out in that moment the exact opposite. You can almost hear it in their voices in verse 44. Their panic-stricken answer. I mean, you can just imagine what they're feeling. Lord, when, when, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And really the end of that verse, that and not help you, that, that's what haunts me when I'm, when I'm picturing that. Because what it does is it reveals that these people weren't just coasting through life, but they were actively looking for Jesus, waiting for him even. But they evidently missed him. The next alarming thing in this passage for me is that it definitely sounds like Jesus is saying that our salvation, our relationship with God, especially in an eternal sense, is tied to what we do. To our works on earth, the Bible calls it. This is alarming because it really flies in the face of almost the rest of Scripture. Salvation is not merit-based. It's not a thing that's determined on how much we do here on earth, right? So before we move on, let's try and tackle what God's uh, saying here and see if it's, it is a contradiction because we seem to have this works-based salvation versus this grace-based salvation. This is key, it's important, it's a game changer for us. So for the plainest explanation of grace-based salvation, we really need to look at a letter the Apostle Paul writes to a church in a town called Ephesus. And it seems like he's answering this very question. So we're gonna look in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Eight and nine, and it's not in your notes page, but it will be on the screens. So Paul, Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace you have been saved, not by works. It seems like Paul's making it pretty plain, pretty clear what he wants to get across to the church in Ephesus about where their salvation comes from and where it lies. Grace here, as Paul is using it, is translated to the Greek word charis, or charis, depending on how you say it, which means undeserved kindness or unmerited favor. So it's by God's unmerited favor that we've been saved through faith. And faith in what? Faith in that God, through Jesus, paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, reconciling us to himself. So through faith, not by works, not by what we do, but what we believe has happened and can happen to us. Let's take a moment for that just to sink in, because that's a huge thing. God loves us so much and desires us to have a relationship with him so much that he went to the extreme of sending his son to death on our behalf. 
And all that we have to do is have faith in this God and what he's done. That's just amazing. Doesn't make sense, really. But wait, you're saying, Adam, what about that Matthew 25 passage? Jesus seems to be saying the opposite. So is there some sort of contradiction here? And I would argue no. Because if we put these two passages together and a lot of other scripture, I think we come out with something that looks a little bit like this. The work that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25 is the fruit or the byproduct that demonstrates the reality of salvation that we find in Christ. So let me say that again. The work Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25, the feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, is the fruit or the byproduct that demonstrates the reality of the salvation that we find in Jesus. But if you're like me, you're asking, well, how does this work? And this brings us back to our question of who is God calling us towards? So let's look at Matthew 25 again, but maybe in a little bit different way. So go with me here. So imagine on this side of the room, it's full of dirty, shame-filled, hungry, thirsty, naked prisoners. Maybe not all those things in one. But over here, we look over here and, and, and I mean, really, you can just see, see a cloud of dirt. I mean, it's dusty, it's, it's gross, it's grimy, it's something that we don't want to be near. And then on this side of the room, there's nothing. It's pristine, it's clear, it's clean. Sterile, even. And we're standing here in the middle. And if we were to ask ourselves, where would Jesus be in this scene? I think the obvious answer is over here, right? I mean, we read through scripture and, and we see what Jesus is doing and where he actually is. He's with these people. I don't know if there's much argument there. And it's plain when we make some sort of illustration like that. But when I'm looking for Jesus, generally speaking, I feel like I'm looking for him over here. I'm looking for him in these clean, sterile, sinless environments. I'm waiting for him to appear in my life in clean and sinless areas. I'm trying to convince myself that Jesus would not want to be in the dirty, shame-filled, seemingly unlovable place over there. And really, the more that I dig into this in my own life, the more I realize this is really what's happening on the inside of me as well. I'm searching for Jesus in the safe and clean areas in my life. I want him to be there and to, be, and to see this part of me. I don't, I don't want him to see the other areas, those dirty, sin-filled places. And so while this Matthew 25 passage is obviously and clearly about helping the poor and needy and desperate in our world. I think first it's about how and where to seek and find Jesus. Less about how much we do and more about where we allow God into our lives. Because once Jesus is allowed into our hearts, once we do that, and he fills us up with his spirit, the only option is then for us to look for him on the outside. And where do we look? We look towards others who share in the same burdens and needs and trials that we have, or worse. Are you with me? Give me a little, yeah, good. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
to be a doctor to the sick. And that's us a lot of times, isn't it? But once we have our oxygen mask firmly affixed to the source of life, we need to look around for others who haven't, have yet to find their mask but are desperately searching for it. She said, okay, Adam, great. I got my mask on. Now can we answer the question of who is God calling me towards? How is this gonna happen if I don't work for it? If it's not this workspace thing and I can't pull myself up, how is this gonna work? So Paul, again, is a great source to answer this. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15, and then kind of continuing on in 19 and 20, um, I think we find the answer. He writes, for Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now I bump down to 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We, therefore, are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. I love that. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. First off, this passage is crazy. It's super complicated. There's a lot in there as you're reading through there and we're not gonna dive in and pull the whole thing apart. But it's crazy. Christ's love compels us. This can be a really challenging concept though, right? I mean, just mentally. So if I could, I'm gonna share two stories, kind of personal stories from my own life that'll hopefully help illustrate what this compelling looks like or can look like in our lives. So growing up, I had a friend. His name is Eric. We met kind of in that summer between sixth and seventh grade. You're looking forward to middle school, or I was junior high for me, so I was like coming out of elementary school and like looking forward and not knowing yet the horrors that will await Eric and I met at a skate park in Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota. And he was an incredible, aggressive, inline rollerblader, which I promise you was super cool back then. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was awful. Um, and so just picture me, kind of this poser. That was the word that we used back then. Skating around like I knew what I was doing. Eric, I'm, I'm watching him and so is everybody else because he's doing some pretty incredible things. Um, Eric and I ended up going to church camp that summer where both of us met Jesus in a real way, really, for the first time. And as we continued to go through school, Eric got plugged into a pretty hard crew of friends. I think the combination between his fearlessness and his addictive personality got him hooked on drugs. And by high school, my friend Eric was a full-blown meth addict. I watched most of the time helplessly is one of my best friends was drowning. He went to treatment a few times in high school and he'd come home and have a period of sobriety but then fall right back in, harder and harder usually every time. So when I left for college to come out to Bozeman, there were a lot of nights where I didn't know if I'd ever see my friend again. And after my freshman year here, my friend Jake and I had this idea 
Jake had come from Minnesota with me. We both were great friends with Eric. And we thought, what if we invited Eric to come out and live with us in Bozeman? Maybe he could get clean then. We just rented a house. We had a spare room. So when we approached Eric, though, with the idea, we weren't expectant at all. We were, at best, hopeful and prayerful. And our surprise, Eric said yes. So we drove to Minnesota, helped him pack up his one bag. It was really all the stuff that he had left. And we drove him back to Bozeman. And he was in really rough shape. If you've ever been around somebody that's detoxing from drugs, it's, it's, not, it's not good. But in a couple weeks, he was clean. He had a job. And he was having a great time here in the summer. We had one rule, though, for Eric. One condition for him to be able to be out and live with us. And it was that he had to stay clean. And I remember well one afternoon when I was working at Bob Ward's, I got a call from Jake and he was in the hospital with Eric and Eric had relapsed. And so it was heavy hearts that we gave him a week to move out. We didn't stop loving him or praying for him, but he had broken a boundary that we had set and we stuck to it. So from there, Eric went straight into an intensive treatment program. And from there, he got out and he stayed clean since then. And that was in 2005. And it's been truly an honor to watch him. He's gotten married. He owns his own business. He's got a kid. Um, really, truly a miracle. But here's why I tell this story. Is that on earth, <laughs> what on earth were two 19-year-old kids doing inviting a meth-addicted friend to come and live with them. <laughs> I can't imagine what my parents were thinking. By all accounts, we were just two selfish teenagers, right? We're like, the world is our oyster, or whatever the phrase is. You know, we're like, like super jacked about being on our own, and we're in Bozeman, and I mean, we're really on our own, right? We got bills and, and all of that. So looking back, though, it's clear. It's just clear that it was the love of Jesus that compelled us towards him and offer him something that we really weren't prepared for. Story number two, and this will be a little bit faster, comes from this past semester in Young Life. Our hope and our prayer in Young Life is that God brings us kids who need his love and aren't feeling it from anywhere else. And this fall, he answered that prayer for us. He brought us a freshman girl in college who came in, and she was honestly the life of the party. She immediately connected with a couple of our volunteer college-age leaders. She came to everything that we did religiously, wanted to hang out all the time. But as the semester wore on, so did the pressures of her life from both outside and in. Her aggressive depression and just the normal pressures of being in college became too much. And one weekend, she decided to take her own life. After she took the pills, she contacted one of our leaders just to let her know what she did. And by the grace and honestly mystery of God, one of our leaders found her. Guys, I'm not sure how to describe it other than a mystery. It was just amazing. She was rushed to the ER in the ICU for two days. There were a couple tense moments. She almost died a few times. And those leaders were with her the whole time. They wouldn't leave. I, I told them to at one point, and they just looked at me and laughed. They invited her into their houses it was really a mess, to be honest with you. She's doing better now, 
Not great, but better. We're excited to keep walking with her. But again, I, I, I offer this story as a picture <laughs> of what it looks like to have God compel us. Because that doesn't make sense, right? Like, why would two college students give up almost everything to help a friend? It just doesn't make sense. This idea of Christ's love compelling us really takes some of the burden off. It isn't our hard work or us pulling us up by our bootstraps, but it's Christ's love compelling us towards people. And then what does he choose to do with that? Verse 19 and 20, if we go back to that. It says, he has committed us to the message of reconciliation, and we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. It's just wild to me. We're being asked to be conduits of the love of God to the broken world. God wants us to be close to him so that he can both work in us and through us, in particular toward Matthew 25 type people. So the answer to the question, who's God calling you towards, kind of on a big level, is the old Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? But it's Jesus' work through us that pushes us towards others. So this sounds great and all, I'm sure you're thinking great, but seriously, what do we do now, right? Like, okay, I'm on board. Maybe you're not, but I'll just assume that. Um, but we need some action steps to help propel us. And that's hard for me. I mean, part of the reason why I'm even talking about this is because I was able to spend an extended period of time kind of in study on this for myself. But why is this so hard, right? It's hard because we aren't in close proximity with Matthew 25 people. Most of us just don't interact with hungry, thirsty, naked, homeless prisoners every day. We just don't, right? Secondly, we live in America. And not only that, we live in Bozeman. We're a little insulated from a lot of that stuff. Many of the issues and problems that plague the rest of the world. And thirdly, American Christianity in particular hasn't done us a great service in preparing us in this way. It's done a great job at mingling kind of this idea of American individualism, right, with salvation, kind of creating this like it's just you and me, God, selfish maybe in a good way, but still selfish, but it's not done a great job at helping us see the community and the needs in it. But there's hope. Here's a couple thoughts, some actionable steps, something you might want to write down if you're a note taker because they're not in your notes because I didn't get them in time. So it starts with prayer, right? Of course it does. And asking God for both forgiveness for not seeing this earlier and for the eyes to see it now, which we'll do that corporately in just a minute. And asking God, who are you calling me towards? Being really open and honest with that. Many times this answer is going to be abundantly clear, right? I mean, there might, there might be people around you. You might be thinking of people right now that, that you know God has been calling and pushing you towards. But sometimes it's not that obvious. You know, we, we, we just don't know. And this is when we need to step out in faith and get proximate, get, get near to some Matthew 25 people. Step two, get proximate. Get near people. Act on what God's asking you to do, or if it's not clear, jump into something that's already going on. Many of our Advent conspiracy partners would love for you to join them, right? Laura's outside. If you all went and were just in line and were like, I want, I want to volunteer, I mean, that, that would be incredible. There's, there is a huge need in our community for that. Young Life, I'd be remiss to not mention Young Life. We would love people, right? Um, money is awesome, by the way. It's... it's like nonprofits need it, and, and really we, we survive because of donations. 
but we need people more. We need presence more because that's what's gonna change lives is presence. Like the physical presence, not like gift presence. So places like HRDC or the Family Promise need that from you. And, and they're, <laughs> all you gotta do is call. All you gotta do is ask and they will have actionable steps for you to move that way. Three, or third, I guess, lastly, missional communities. Talk a lot about missional communities here, right? Almost all of our eggs are in that basket. And one of the best things about missional communities is as a group, you get to serve regularly with local organizations that need help and get you in front of Matthew 25 people. There's a million other reasons why missional communities are amazing and I think just the way to go and I'm sure we'll be talking about those more maybe even next week, I would think. And if you need some help getting into a missional community, just let somebody know out in the lobby. We want to get you plugged in. We want to get you tied in with that. In a large church like this, it can feel like you can get lost sometimes. And sometimes you want that or even feel like you need it. But we want you to get connected. We want this place to be smaller. So now a word of caution, though. This can be really overwhelming, all of this. Because the problems in our broken world and even in our community are so immense. Global slavery is at an all-time high. Water crisis, it's dire. Children all over the world are starving to death. I mean, literally starving to death. People are being imprisoned and held on charges that aren't fair and aren't true. And while God may be asking you to bring his love and grace into these really large, complex, global issues, he also wants you to know that it really begins with those around you. He wants us to have his eyes and ears close to home as well. God's love is for every individual person it's for you, it's for me, it's for your neighbor, it's for the kids in your kids' school, it's for your kids, it's for the guy in the street corner. And so instead of feeling overwhelmed with the immensity of the problems, I just ask you to focus your gaze on Christ and look for him around you. And also please hear me when I say that us doing this out of a sense of obligation or guilt or a feeling of shame is honestly, the furthest from what God wants in this. And if you are feeling this way at all, you've got to go back to God and ask him to take away those feelings because they aren't from him. They just aren't. It's a lie from the enemy. And it's only going to make you bitter and burnt out and quit because you'll jump into something full force because you feel like you have to. But it's just not going to last that long. We need God to be working through us for the long haul. So, it's New Year's Eve today. Tomorrow starts 2018. We look at New Year's as kind of a fresh start, or a lot of us do anyways. Focus on new beginnings. We make resolutions. What if our New Year's resolutions this year centered less around us and more around people? What if instead of losing 15 pounds or waking up earlier or stop smoking, all those are fine and good, by the way, our resolution was to become proximate or near Matthew 25 people and just see what happens. What if as a church, we were a people known for stepping out and stepping up to the challenge of loving because we were loved first, because God wants to use us in ways, guys, we can't even fathom so that he'll be lifted up and in the process others will get lifted up and we'll know him more. Carl Lentz, a pastor in New York, uses this term that I really like. It's preconceived grace. 
means something like we get to be so filled with grace and love towards others that we might not even met yet, who we might feel like are outsiders, that there's nothing they can say, nothing they can do that could change that love and grace towards them. And that when we look around our community and we look around our world, instead of seeing people in terms the world places on them, dirty or homeless, stranger, enemy, terrorist, murderer, we see Jesus. We allow the love of God to flow through us onto those people. This doesn't mean we get to excuse sin or get run over, but it does mean that we lead with grace and love every time. And I know that this is incredibly challenging. I think it's meant to be. And I know this is messy. And I think that it's meant to be. But God loves people so much, so much that he came down, lived a perfect life, was tortured, and died hanging on a cross. And why? Because he loves us that much. He loves them. And he loves you. So, who are you going to move towards? Let's go ahead and set your things aside. As we enter into a time of reflection and prayer, and even now, maybe be reflecting on who in your life God is calling you towards. I'll come in in a second and finish this up. Lord, you're just amazing. Your love and grace and care for us is just really something to behold. And to think that this is just who you are. Your unconditional love towards us and everyone just doesn't make much sense. Lord, forgive us for not seeing you and those around us. And God, we ask that you compel us to move out from the comfort and safety of our lives and move towards those in desperate need. Lord, remind us that this is where we will find you with the hungry, with the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, the prisoner. Lord, we just ask you to show us that next step. God, we ask us that you take any feelings of guilt or shame away from us and replace it with your grace and truth. And as you say, let your love compel us towards loving and caring for others. Let us be ambassadors of your reconciling love. We want to be kingdom bringers, Lord. Show us what that means for us as individuals and as a church. But maybe you're here this morning and you aren't quite ready to ask the question of who God's calling you towards because you don't have a real relationship yet with Jesus. But you've been listening today and you've been feeling and hearing a still small voice calling to you and you're ready to take the next step that leads to a relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And if that's you, I want to make it clear that no decision matters more in your life. Choosing Jesus today doesn't mean just a ticket to heaven when you die, but it means a real relationship right now. And so if this is you, I'd ask you to pray along with me in your head these words. God, I admit today to you that I am a sinner. I've been taking my own way for far too long and it has not gotten me to a place that I thought it would. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that you sent him down to earth so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for me, that he willingly died on the cross, taking my sin on, creating the only way to be in a right relationship with you. 
and that he was resurrected and sits with you at your right hand. Lord, I want eternal life in you to start today. I choose you because you chose me. I love you, Lord. And if you just prayed that prayer with me right then, we want you to know that it is by far the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. And to help cement that decision you made today with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you be so bold to slip your hand up? Just make eye contact with me and declare that you're a new creation in Christ. You can do that now. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. A God of grace, a God of abundance, a God who wants to work through us to gather more people to his kingdom. We love you so much, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.